Yes, I'm still here, Hollywood. Coming up... I don't say I was suicidal because I have too big an ego to ever go through with it. Because that's the, that's the ultimate admission of failure in my situation. I was definitely suicide adjacent. You know, I remember there was one day Kelly was crying. And I, I sat down next to her, I was like, what's going on? She's like, my, I don't think I can sing, my voice is... So I'm like, well, let me go get you, some, can we get you some tea? We'll get you some honey and some whatever they put that to bath. I know there's like a, tr a singer's trick. And then one of the producers like, hey, you may not want a good TV. And I'm like, you know, this is a human being, man. And I walked into his dressing room and he got up. He's like, Uncle Man. And I said, I got to get this out. This is part two of my discussion with American Idol season one co-host, Brian Dunkelman. He talks more about the struggles with his sudden fame, the stress he felt because of the conflict the show wanted, and how he came to terms with Ryan Seacrest. So when we got back from the nationwide search, uh, that's when we started doing studio shows. And we would do one performance show that was taped, and then the next night we would have a live show. Well, the first one, I saw Simon and, and Randy, they were drinking some coffee, and uh, there was this really great kid, Jim Verraro. So I'm still in touch with him. We still communicate all the time. He just had a single drop, by the way. Check it out. Jim Verraro's new single is wonderful. Um, great kid. And I hear them, they're like, yeah, we're going to nail Jim. What do, you, what do you mean you're going to nail Jim? He's the sweetest kid in the world. What are you talking about? That's all really, I really heard. So they start, Jim is the first singer. Paula says, oh, you're wonderful. That was great. And Randy's like, dog, you did your thing. Dog, dog, dog. And then Simon said, let's cut the crap. That wasn't nearly good enough. If this was up to me, you wouldn't make it past this round. And if you continue in this, we would have failed at our jobs. And Jim, Jim's like visibly shaken. He's kind of tearing up. And he comes over and he sits down. I put my arm around him. I say, hey, Paul Abdul says you're great. What else matters? And then we threw the commercial in. It's just one of the executive producers. Cut. He pulls me off the set around the corner and he just starts chewing me out, Steve. He's just, yeah, you didn't even, what the F are you doing? You didn't even once mention what Simon said to him, I said. And he's chewing me out. And I thought, hold on a second. Just so I make sure I'm clear, if these kids, this is a direct quote, if these kids come to this couch feeling like shit, I'm supposed to make sure they continue to feel like shit? He got right in my face, stuck his finger in my chest and said, you're goddamn fucking right. And I just could not believe what happened. I go back to the couch and I'm sitting there. I'm just stunned. Afterwards, they always looked at the tip of your eyebrows. I'm like, just because you just told me my job is to make sure that these kids are feeling terrible. That was the first, the first show when we got back. And then cut to, they kicked Jim off. And then they, oh, I got a frantic call. Well, he's back on the show. Please don't say anything. So I don't know what happened. But he ended up back on the show and then made the final 10. That was really a, a pretty intense experience for me. This is when I'm, I don't like what's going on here at all. And during this time, when the kids are looking at you, what's going on? I have no idea. Uh, we're just talking monkeys compared to everybody else. We're not, I make the fries here. The next show that there, there was a kid, uh, RJ Helton. He sang, same thing, sang great. Paul LeBrand, Simon lit into him again. And there was a very famous fight where Simon and Randy went after after it looks Randy stood up and it looked like he was going to knock Simon out. What Simon said, and I need to be careful about this and uh, because what he said was we've already let two other monkeys through in this competition. He did not mean it 
as as the kid was Hispanic, not black. He didn't mean it as a racial slur. It's kind of like Howard Cosell. Look at that little, you know. Yeah. He didn't mean it. It didn't matter. Rand Randy st- went berserk. What are you talking about? Yeah, you can't call people. And it, it was ugly. The kids were crying. They had to separate them. And I thought, man, he's going to knock Simon out. They cleared the whole set, and this was a tape show, but there were still a lot of people, all the kids, everybody, and they took a break. And then they came back, and then one of the producers like, okay, we're going to shoot that over, but he's going to say uh, 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 loser. He's going to call him a loser. So they made the kid stand there again, and what they did is they took actual footage from Randy freaking out, and then they intercut it with him saying loser. So people are like, why is he losing it over, over somebody saying loser? Because that's not what happened. And then the next girl that sang, Kristen Holt, it's a sweetheart, uh, Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. She ran towards the judges and slid under the table. That was her big moment. She sang next. She came over. If this was a beauty competition, you'd be moving forward. But unfortunately, it's a singing competition that was just not good enough. And she's kind of tearing up and... She's like, well, at least you didn't call me a monkey. Caught. Kids start crying. And they, they separate them. They go to their dressing rooms again. It's like that's when all the kids are looking at you. Why are you doing this to us? And I'm like, because you're I the face of the nothing. show. So. I got nothing to do with this. And that's where I that's when I really just started to hate myself for being a part of it. It was the first couple of weeks. And it just uh I just knew it's not what I wanted to do. And another thing is, is that they didn't have writers. My bosses wrote the script. <sighs> Look, I'm not. I, you can call me whatever you want. You don't need to like my stand-up. I've never been accused of being corny or cheesy. I don't like the word edgy, but I'm an R-rated, dirty comedian, you know. And I do it in the, the documentary. My trademark bit was an impression of Hitler doing stand-up, and and like an idiot. There's no footage of it. This got me my first manager. It got me my first agent. It got me into the Aspen Comedy Festival, the HBO Comedy Arts Comedy Festival, this bit. And if I if I do it now, I'd be canceled immediately. No footage of it, Steve. So the intelligent person I am during the documentary, I just performed it. Because you can't tell the story of this bit. You have to do it. And some people thought it was the funniest thing that they've ever seen. And some people were horribly offended. But it's what started my career. And then to be just kind of labeled as cheesy and, and corny, it's not at all why I got into this business. Um, so that was very difficult for me to deal with. I hired three of my comedian friends to write for me. And I would get the scripts, I would fax them, fax them the scripts, and they would punch them up and I, I paid them. I paid them out of my own pocket. And I didn't tell anybody. I would pitch them right before the live show. Oh yeah, that's funny. I'm like, yeah, I know. Because my friend Doug Benson wrote it. That's why. Um, so I cared. I cared how I was perceived. But uh, it's not who I was. And I didn't want to be... Here's the thing. I got into this business to be a performer. Not to introduce other performers. So that's really the main reason that I, I, I you know, didn't want to be seen as a cheesy guy. Nothing wrong with it. Ryan Seacrest, I've, all I've ever wanted. Be a cheesy guy on television. Mission accomplished. We talked about it. And he wanted to parlay it in as many, many hosting gigs for radio, TV, and build an empire. And man, he did it like that. He did it real quick. And I thought I want to do a season or two and then have a career as an actor. So 
you know, he, he did exactly what he wanted to do. But and it's nothing against anybody who wanted to. That's just not why I got into this business. So it, those two things very early on were the main things that really, now this is just isn't right. Would you say that's uh, the thing that disillusioned you most about the most the were those two, those two instances when, when, when you're putting those kids through that, um, I don't know, it's mentally and emotionally abusive, period. And I'm glad that the show has changed over the years. I don't watch it, but oh, I was going to ask you that. Do you no, ever watch it? no. I watched the the Fox finale when I sat there after I helped him. I helped him. I opened the show with Seacrest. You know, what's funny is we did the we did a rehearsal. You know, I want to talk about that for a second because I hadn't seen him since the last show we did together. It's been a long time. And the thing is, is that what I didn't enjoy the most about doing stand up on the road is I had to do a lot of morning radio and a lot of morning TV, and I had to do more TV than most people because all the Fox stations wanted me on where they wouldn't normally have a Comic-Con, but they all wanted So it's just the same thing over and over and over again. And to the point where I was just like, I'm just going to eight mile myself, like, you know, Eminem's movie, where you can't attack me, I'm going to attack myself. So I went in and made fun of myself. It, it just wears on you. And people are like, well, do you just hate Ryan? I'm like, well, no, but since everybody brings it up to me on a daily basis, it was almost more painful than my father's death because people didn't bring up my father's death every day of my life. There's a stretch there. I couldn't watch television or listen to the radio or go online without seeing something about America. I was just everywhere. So it was just uh, it's not a good time. I had a little experience with Ryan myself. Oh, how was it? Oh, Let's talk well, about it. They... Uh, <laughs> At, when I was at E, uh, and they dismissed me, mm -hmm. they brought Ryan in to... Uh, Isn't that interesting how that happened? They brought they, Ryan in. We should have Rick Dees. We should have Casey Kasem, God rest his soul. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Yes, as a matter of fact, they talked to me about coming back. We had a, I had a uh, nice <laughs> meeting with the uh, new general manager yeah. at um, the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. Very nice setting. And he told me how much his wife enjoyed me. <laughs> and, uh, and I was fully expecting to get a call saying, you know, because a lot of the people who were at E were still working there. And they called me at home and said, you know, I think they're going to bring you back. Mm. So your, your hopes start getting up. I love that job. I mean, yeah. I, tell, I, used to tell, I used to tell people it was the best job I could have, yeah. you know. And it was for a while. You never know in this business. It's my experience, and I'm supposed to be talking to you, so. Somebody else wanted your gig? Yeah, and you never know when it's going to change yeah. or when something you say is going to slip. Sure. You know, what's funny is that a couple of years, and maybe two years after, uh, Live with Regis and Kelly called, and they asked me to be a part of the show for a full week because Kelly was going on maternity leave, and they wanted to do a little spoof search for America's next co-host. So we, we did a little tour. Uh, Rolanda Watts loved her, and Gelman and I were the judges. And we went to four cities, and just people auditioned to be co-host. And I was there for a full week. God, I loved Regis Philbin. I'm sure you met Regis. Yes. He's the greatest, the greatest guy in the world. Loved him. And um, I was up in the office, and I, I see a couple... Uh, poster boards with uh, names and cards on them. I see Seacrest's name. I was like, oh, is Seacrest going to be a guest on the show? He's like, nah. 
No, that's a list of people that are being pitched. His agents called every day this week trying to get him on the show because I was on the show. And then he went on to host the show, didn't he? This is, this is who we're talking about. He, gets, he goes after what he wants, doesn't he? And that's why people go, oh, give Wheel of Fortune to Dunkman. I couldn't care less about Wheel of Fortune. I don't want to host a game show. I don't. That's funny. I'm an artist, Steve. That's, uh, yes, I can tell. <laughs> well, the funny thing was, uh, when I was working for CBS, uh, they got me on Ryan's radio show yeah. to promote a series that I was doing. And it was a very pleasant experience, but uh, I'll be honest here. I had an ego, and I thought, this kid is doing radio, and I'm on the CBS <laughs> O&O in Los Angeles, for crying right. out loud. And I developed very quickly a little resentment towards him. Yeah. And... Um, I get it. It's, it's <laughs> just funny the way the business works out here. You know, I had worked at small television stations throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got here very quickly from the, from the time I got into uh, television news uh, until in five years I got to where I wanted to be. I wanted to be at a network-owned station mm. in a top 10 market. Sure. Los Angeles was number two. It was owned by CBS. Wow, mm. this is great. Uh, but then you get out here and it's not a normal existence. No, it's not. And that's one of the reasons I say it was good to me, but not good for me. Sure. There was a, a period of time, uh, there was a, a producer I worked with at CBS who pulled me aside one day and he said, you know, people are gonna come up to you and start offering you cocaine and mm. things of that nature. I just want you to be prepared. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. And sure enough, before long, uh, it's funny. And you, if you're young and inexperienced, you can't help but think you're doing the right thing. Sure. Oh, everybody's doing this. Partying, yeah. man. Oof. Nicholson did that. Hey, yes. Just like him. Yes. Uh, <laughs> William Hurt did that. Right. Uh, I ran into William Hurt once on a street in New York City, and he was so stoned. But that's yeah. neither here nor there. <laughs> we taped on a Tuesday night and a Wednesday afternoon at 5 o'clock. Um, on a Monday night, I was out, and um, one of my friends was like, hey, we should get some Coke. And I said, well, I've just had three martinis. That's a great idea. <laughs> well, give me I gave her the money. She went and got it, blue lines. I don't think I fell asleep until about 6.30 in the morning. Had to go to work at 10.00. Blocking, rehearsal, tried to get a nap in in my dressing room, not really. And so I did that show in that condition. I wasn't high, but it was just all, you know, pretty cracked out from the night before. I pulled it off fine. Well, that night, I went over to a different buddy's house, and he had some cocaine. So Steve, like any normal person, I did the same damn thing two nights in a row. 7 a.m., finally fell asleep, couple hours of sleep, went in, and... That was the show, and it's interesting. It's almost like Seacrest smelled blood in the water because that show, he decided not to read what was on the teleprompter four times, which when you're doing live television, that's my line is next. Here's the setup for my joke or my information, and he would just go off script and turn to me and to make it look like I was screwing up, and I covered as well as I could. But you can go back and watch this episode, the fourth one. He just looks at me and he's like, say something, Dunk. I said, what do you want me to say, Ryan? How about we'll be right back with more American Idol? We'll be right back with more American Idol. And then they cut and I said, you going to say one effing thing that's on the teleprompter tonight? 
And after that show, my manager, my agent, and my best friend basically had to pick me up to keep me from going at him. They threw me in an elevator and got me up to my dressing room because I was not happy at all. So um, that, that was one of the little conflicts that we had. It's almost like he knew something was off, you know? And after you've done it for a while, mm-hmm. you realize how dependent the people behind the scenes in the director's booth, mm-hmm. uh, floor manager, um, other people you're working with, yeah. they're depending on you to follow the script. Of course. Yeah, that's, it's, everything's timed to that. And it's just, um, see, that, here's another thing. I've been I've been involved with three reality shows in my life, and without question, the worst three experiences of my career. Uh, I just and nothing against anybody who's into the genre who works in it, but just it was not for me. And my opinion is my own because I earned it. I I saw the things that happened. Now, when when you're when you're acting and especially comedy, it's such a collaborative effort between the writers. The producers, the director, the DP, all the crew, everybody is just, how can we make this as good as possible? How can we make this as funny and as high quality as we can? With reality television, it's different. It's how can we elicit a genuine emotional response from this person? That's basically putting in situations, how can we get them really pissed off? How can we make them cry? How can we, so it's just... It's just a completely different mindset. Um, that's just not. And, and if anybody's watching reality television and thinks it, it's real at this point, I no, can't help you. Not at I all. I cannot help you. I mean, but a lot of people want to turn their brains off, and I get it. But we're living in a golden age of television. These last ten years, there's amazing television. There's so many good television shows. There's such great acting. You got. It used to be a stigma. Now there's Oscar winners. So three Oscar winners in one show. You mm-hmm. know, it's just totally changed. Hell, but that's Meryl just, Streep does television. Lord, it's unbelievable. But that's the team that I've always wanted to be on. And and that was a big, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, this is reality. It's just going to be a flash in the pan and you're ruining your career and you're going to get, and I'm like, yeah, you're right. And it just never went away. Isn't that a funny thing too? As much television as you've done, mm-hmm. I never got accustomed to the fact that there's always somebody who knows better than you. Oh, yeah. Always. <laughs> Isn't there? Always is. And I think you experienced it where if you speak your mind, that is uh, can be the kiss of death. Yeah. Well, I got a lot of flack from some other comedians, too. And in retrospect, they would have killed to have had my opportunity. A lot of people were just jealous, and, and there's a lot of that. It's not so much anymore because there's a lot more opportunities for comics than there used to be. You know, with podcasting, and there's so many things that you can do independently, but it really affected me because you go, you know, as you said, I don't know what this deep seated need for approval is, but you want that from your, your fellow comedians as well. You don't want to be seen as a cheesy hack. Nobody wants that. And I would go on the road and I would have people go, wow, I, I only saw you on American Idol. You're really, really funny. And I'm like, well, thanks. That's what I've been doing. That's what I did before I did this show. So, um, but since then, I've I've had a lot of opportunities. I've been in, I've done a few pilots. I've done, um, you know, I was on cool shows like NYPD Blue. I got to do Las Vegas. I'm doing my scene. James Khan is right there watching my scene, and I'm like, it's Jimmy Khan is right there. And I finish. He starts laughing. He's like, ah, funny kid, and just walks away. And I'm like, I'll have that forever. And you know what? I didn't get a selfie. I didn't post a picture of us when he died. I just was like, that guy was watched me work, and it was really cool just to be in his presence. 
those are the things that mean more to me than the fame or the money. It's just, it's those experiences, the body of work. It's like, I don't care what my legacy is. My kid is my legacy. Mm. It's all I care. I don't care about anything else. If people want to think of me as the guy from Idol, fine. I know they don't think of me as the guy from Two Guys, A Girl, and A Pizza Place, although I was really good on that. I think that's what I was my first time at Radford. Two Guys, A Girl, and A Pizza Place. But, you know, the thing is, is that I really did, oh, man, it was the first thing I thought about every day. And it was the last thing I thought about before I fell asleep or passed out. And I did everything I could do to pass out. I was tortured. It's literally all I could think of. And when they asked me to come back for the finale, and it was just by chance, my sister flew out. She's like, she was there from the beginning. She just knew I was very close with one of my sisters. She kind of helped raise me. Here's another thing my brother shared with me. He said, we used to line up to read to you at night. I've just been showered with attention because my mother and father did not name me. They let the other nine kids name me. It was I was almost Stephen. It was five, four. I was almost a Stephen. And if I was a girl, it would have been definitely Martha because I guess they thought I was going to be born an 80-year-old woman. I don't know what the <laughs> rationale was behind that, but I think I lucked out. But um, I don't say I was suicidal because I have too big an ego to ever go through with it. Because that's the, that's the ultimate admission of failure in my situation. I was definitely suicide adjacent. I definitely wanted to die. We'll be back in a moment. You know, I remember there was one day Kelly was crying. And I, I sat down next to her. I was like, what's going on? She's like, my, I don't think I can sing. My voice is... So I'm like, well, let me go get you some, can we get you some tea. We'll get you some honey and some whatever. They put that to bed. I know there's like a, tr a singer's trick. And then one of the producers was like, hey, you may not want a good TV. And I'm like, you know, this is a human being, man. And I walked into his dressing room and he got up. He's like, Uncle Man. And I said, I got to get this out. So the season ended, that, that first season of American Idol. And um, it's really the first chance I had to really kind of breathe. So my girlfriend at the time, we went to uh, Hawaii. We went to Kauai. I'd never been there. And I'd never had money my entire life. And I'm sitting there on this beach and I'm looking around. I'm like, how do I leave this show? How do I give this up? I mean, this is an incredible thing that's happened to me. But I'm so miserable. I know I'll never have the career that I want if I keep doing this show. It got too big. When you're introducing yourself, hey, I'm Brian Dunkelman twice a week on national, you know, live television. It's just like, how are you going to be a character actor? You know, How are you going to be taken seriously? I don't think I would have had an opportunity. I wouldn't have had a chance... And what, killed, what what was hard for me is that right around this time, I opened for Zach Galifianakis. We did uh, Austin together. Greatest guy in the world. Had such a great time. And Ken Jung was a buddy of mine. We used to hang out at the Improv almost every night. Sweetest man in the way. You know, they say Henry Winkler is the nicest man in all of his show business. It's, it's, a, it's a tie. Henry Winkler and Ken Jung. And I could not be more happy for both of those guys. But that's when The Hangover came out. And I saw oh, yeah. that movie. I was like, this is what I want to do. And yet this is, I'm, I'm the host of the show and people think I'm cheesy and I'm getting mocked all the time. And, and I sat on that beach and I thought, I just, I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. I can't do this anymore. And I had already decided. And then I did how I called into Howard Stern because I had a buddy telling me everything. Howard was just railing me every day. And I thought it wasn't, I was a fan of his, but not like most people are obsessed with the show. And like, why are you telling me this? 
I shouldn't know. Don't tell me what the negative things people. So I was like, I'm calling him. I stayed up all night and I had a couple buddies and I had note cards and responses. And by the end of the interview, he was kind of on my side and defending me to people that were calling in. And it was, and that's when I thought, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to lose my mind. I hired a publicist and I, I released a statement, I think in, was it Daily Variety? I'm, I'm moving on to other opportunities. Very grateful. And all I can tell you is that my agent at the time that day was on the Fox lot and saw the head of publicity at Fox and said that they were all completely shocked and that it, took, it really took them by surprise. And in his words, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's what I was told. So that's what I carried for the next decade. It's just like, I, I just made it because then I couldn't get arrested. I did a couple pilots, but then it was just, there's nothing except just, um, just depression. And that's when they asked me to do the finale. And, and so hearing that, it, it really did, it, it changed a lot for me. Do you follow any of the uh, American Idol contestants? Uh, were... just, just the ones that were on that first season. I do a podcast, by the way, um, called Dunkle Vision. We did, uh, we call it a season. There's no seasons of podcasting, but it's um, kind of a nostalgia mixed with uh, how does one get into a life of creativity? What makes you want to get into the arts? And my first guest was Justin Guarini. Uh, the, and that's another thing. He's always going to be the runner-up on the first season of American Idol to Kelly Clarkson. Okay, the sweetest I was trying to remember. Guy. I thought it was Kelly who won. Yep, and Justin's the sweetest guy in the world. He's doing great. He's on Broadway right now, but to have him as my first guest and to really, we had very similar experiences where we did not like being who we were, you know, because he went through a really dark period too and that's all he was known for, so we kind of bonded over that. But um, I do keep in touch, like I said, Jim Verraros. Nikki McKibben, who passed away like a couple weeks before she did, she just randomly reached out to me on Facebook. Hey, Dunkelman, miss your face. And then uh, two weeks later, she passed away. So I do keep in touch with some of those kids. I'm friends with them on Facebook. And, you know, I I believe what they say. They they knew that I was a genuine person back then, and they knew that I kind of stuck up for them and and, and took, took some heat for it. You know, I remember there was one day Kelly was crying. And I, I sat down next to her. I was like, what's going on? She's like, "My, I don't think I can sing. My voice is... So I'm like, well, let me go get you... Some, can we get you some tea? We'll get you some honey and some whatever they put that to bath. I know there's like a, tr- a singer's trick. And then one of the producers like, hey, you may not want a good TV. And I'm like, you know, this is a human being, man. What are you doing? You want her to go out there and not be able to sing? It's just gross. She's done okay for herself. She's done okay. <laughs> now she's hosting the ESPYs. They're like, what are you doing? Taking my jobs, I don't want to host anyway, but you know what I'm saying. So over the years after I left the show, I didn't go well for a few. I, nobody would hire me. And I, I, I of course, uh, ended things with my agent and my manager, and then I could not get another manager, Steve. And I had one that had heavily pursued me before Idol. And I'm thinking, well, I, he, he can finally work with me now. He's like, yeah. He's like, nobody believes you. He's like, you, you've got the stink on you. He said, my advice leave town, go for a while, and then come back. I was like, what are you, nuts? I just finally got on real television, and he he was right. I couldn't get another manager. I ran out of money. I ended up working for a a buddy of mine that my girlfriend, who became my wife, had worked as his personal assistant. He just threw me a bone. 
he's like, I'll give you, I'll pay you 400 bucks a week. You just do stuff around the house and do my stuff in the office and you can go audition when you want. It was really, really nice of him. But um, that's where I was as the show was just, you know, 30 million viewers. And um, I started working gradually. I finally got back out on the road, did a little bit of stand-up. You know, a voiceover comes through, a couple little pilots surviving. And then, you know, that's that's what I did for a long year just kind of, you know, I wasn't gone. I didn't go anywhere, but I wasn't visible. And you know what? I didn't hire a publicist to get me in Us Weekly. They're just like us. I just, that's not, I don't want to be that. I'm not clinging onto this. I wanted to have people forget about it. Forget about me. Then I can actually get my opportunity to show my talent and make as an actor. But they would not forget about me, Steve. Every year would go by, somebody would talk about me publicly, somebody would want to interview. And I didn't do a lot of interviews, but I was like, this is just weird. I still think it's the name, Dunkelman. It's just, it's not very forgettable. No, uh, everybody knows who you're talking about when you say Regis, Brian Dunkelman. Dunkelman. Dunkelman, what are you doing? You're too busy for this kid. And, um, but I was making it, you know, I wasn't lighting the world on fire. And then it was either 15 or 16, the Fox finale. It was announced American Idol is ending, and so I tweeted out. I knew that show would never last without <laughs> me, and I got a, I got a lot of play out of that. And um, they called my agent, and they they asked me to come and open the show with Ryan. And my agent and my manager did not want me to do it. And I thought I think I have to. And then they were going to try and get me some real money to do it because they're reps. That's right. that's what they want. They want their commission. And then they came back and said, no, nope, everybody's getting $350. All the ex-contestants, you're getting $350. And I just started laughing. I said, tell them yes. I said, I have to. I don't know why. I just knew I had to do it. I said, I can't carry this around anymore. And uh, I'm really glad that I did because I saw Ryan and I didn't want to see him on the set. I was like, I made a point. I need to see him alone. I don't want to be fake in front of all these people. I don't know how this is going to go. And I walked in to his dressing room and he got up. He's like, Dunkelman. And I said, I got to get this out. I said, I, I just want you to know, I'm really sorry for all the times that we didn't get along back then. And I said, I really do wish you nothing but the best for you and your family. And I'm, I'm just really happy for you with all your success. And he, he was really kind of taken aback. And, um, and then I was kind of like, and there, is there something you would like to say? But that's not <laughs> what it was about. It was about me dropping the bag of crap and not carrying it anymore. And then he was like, oh, I see you're married and you have a son. He's like, you have everything I don't. And he meant it. Like it was like a genuine moment. And then we did rehearsal. And then during rehearsal, we did a hug. And then we're walking away. And he's like, should we do, when we do the live, we do, do the hug. I'm like, you're damn right we're doing the hug. I call my friend. And he's like, you know what would be really funny? When you're live, under no circumstance, do you let go? Do not let go of him. Just keep hugging him. Take him to the ground. I said that would have been amazing. That would have gotten clicks. But yeah, that's that's when I found out that it, I didn't have a choice. They were going to can me anyway. So after the show was over, I was walking through the hallway with my sister, and just randomly, Mike Darnell, who was the head of the unscripted department of Fox, was in. Was in. He just happened to see me. Brian, come on in. We got food. We got drinks. I'm like drinks right now I need a drink and we started talking and that's when he told me he's he's like we were really bummed out and I was like but 
why were you bummed out? He said, when the decision came down, I said, whose decision was it, Steve? Or, or I, I said, Mike, because I did not get, I didn't get fired. He's like, I know you didn't. He's like, you quit and announced you were leaving before we got a chance to tell you. I don't know why they decided to let me twist for three weeks because they did. They rehired Simon and they re rehired Ryan and they just let me and Paul and Randy twist for two, three weeks and they let them twist for another couple months and I think it might have just been a negotiating ploy but he told me that they really struggled with it but they decided that it would be best if there was just one and it wasn't you. And that's when I felt the weight of the world come off of my shoulders because I thought I had done this to myself. And then I called my same friend about the hug and I told him, I told him what happened. I said, they were going to fire me. And he's like, see, you're not an idiot. You're just a failure. And I said, I can live with that. I'm fine with that. So that's the first step in everything kind of healing for me. And then I just, you know, just been toiling away and, and, and just waiting opportunity after opportunity and to the point where I just shot a pilot for my own show. And, you know, you know how this business is. If you don't go away, it's a numbers game. Obviously, you have to be brilliantly talented too. But I can't do anything else. I'm not going to sell real estate. I watch football on Sunday, Steve. So do I. I watch, are you a Bears fan? Yes, I am. Unfortunately. I'm so sorry. Oh, God, yeah. Not <laughs> since 1985 has there been anything to cheer about. Yeah, well, at least you got the cheer. Yeah. We'll get there, True, Steve. True, sorry. We'll get there, Steve. The Bills will do it. One of these days. One last question. Yes, sir. What's your favorite app? My favorite app has become Instagram. I'm glad that you asked because I am at the Brian Dunkelman because there was a high school girl in Long Island that decided that she needed my name more than I did. And I can't get rid of her, Steve. I can't get rid of her. Now she's, she's taunting me from her page and, and that's fine. But I would really love people to follow me on Instagram because I started doing these, like I said, I was singing karaoke and I named them Dunkyoke. <laughs> and then wouldn't you know, about a year later, somebody named Kelly Clarkson started doing Kellyoke. I'm not saying I'm suing because I love Kelly. I think it's her people. I'm considering litigation. But I think what would be a great idea is if somebody approached me about doing an album called Donkey Oki, kind of a spoof of Kelly Oki, since I was the one that originated it. 270 songs, Steve. I just sang, I just sang in a, in a comedy con or a karaoke contest on Halloween night, honorable mention. Dressed as what? Uh, King George III, because I am going to audition for Hamilton. So I already had the wig and I had a crown and my, uh, my ex-wife gave me a fur shawl that I could wear. And she's like, don't screw this up and ruin it. And I'm like, don't worry about it. And uh, when I told my son I was going to audition for Hamilton, his response was, ah, dad, you'll never get it. And that pissed me off. And now I'm going to teach him. I'm going to teach <laughs> him a very valuable lesson because I'm going to send in that audition tape and I'm going to be King George III. And teach him never to underestimate your dad. That's right. Where do you think you got this, son? Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much, nice Steve. And congratulations to you on the new podcast. Oh, thanks. It's great to see you. You're one of the OGs. What, is the, what does OG mean it anyway? It doesn't mean old guy. It does not mean old guy. By the way, OG. Well, I'm relaxed. OG Fantasy Football. Check it out. We have about 15 listeners. It's uh, the, oh, the original. You're one of the original oh. entertainment journalists. Please. It's a good thing, Steve. Okay, thank you. I'll take it as a good thing. There was one <laughs> thing you said in your documentary that I'd, I'd never heard before. Something about five points. Oh, five points of information. That was all the that was 
Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah, just five points of information. You're in New York City. It's a singing contest. One of the judges is sick. Go. Oh. Make it up. Okay. Yeah. Improv. Groundlings trainings, Steve. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I've had a good time. Me too. If you are having thoughts of suicide, there's help. You can talk to a trained counselor at any time of the day or night at the 988 Suicide and Crisis Line by dialing or texting 988 on your mobile phone. Still Here Hollywood is a production of the Still Here Network. All things technical run by Justin Zangerly. Theme music by Brian Sanishin. And executive producer is Jim Lichtenstein.